Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Bone Up the Podcast. We're live again, Richie. We're here in Liverpool and we're at the European Calcified Tissue Society meeting. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. It's a really great conference. I've been a couple of times in the past and there's always really good talks. And uh, I was lucky enough to study for my PhD in Liverpool, so it's nice to be back to my alma mater and uh, come to a city that really still feels like home. That's great. And a big thanks to the ECTS who have been very welcoming and supportive and indeed proactive about supporting us with the podcast here. And indeed, thanks to the people who've just come up and, and spoken to us and, uh, and are keen to take part. So we hope to bring you a, a real flavour of what it's like to be at a scientific conference, in particular to be at a scientific conference where people are talking about bones. We're going to try and catch some of the award winners. There's lots of awards given out for some really wonderful research at the conference. We'll try and get some young investigators on and we'll try and uh, get some time with the, uh, the big profs so they can tell us why they come to ECTS and what they get out of it. And from my point of view, primarily as a clinician, what I love about these meetings is that there are clinicians and scientists together talking about bones, talking about treatments and trying to work together to do their best for patients. I find these meetings very sort of stimulating and productive from that point of view. As a scientist, I hope you enjoy speaking to clinicians as well. Um, I love talking to clinicians. More importantly, at these conferences, I have to listen to them because for me to deliver research, for anybody to deliver research, which is gonna be useful in the clinical field, you really have to start by listening to the clinician and finding out what the problems are and then trying to think about solutions for problems. Lots of researchers, I think, they come up with solutions and then afterwards they go and try and identify yeah. the problem and uh, that's absolutely the wrong way to do it. And these conferences are just a kind of one-stop shop for what do we need to do and when do we need to do it by. And ultimately then, smashing our brains together, what we're trying to do is to get better outcomes for patients, particularly for patients for osteoporosis. Mm. But at a big conference like this, we get to hear about all sorts of other rare and interesting bone diseases as well. Yeah, we're going to hear about Paget's disease. We're going to hear about osteogenesis imperfecta. Lots of interesting topics to yeah. cover. Fibrous dysplasia, mm. uh, osteomalacia, lots of things on, on, the, on the agenda. Yeah, um, and we're looking forward to it. Let's get started. Let's go. We're really lucky to have Kate Ward with us. Kate, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's really good to see you guys again. A friend of the podcast. Absolutely. Third time. <laughs> <laughs> so this year, the ECTS and the BRS came together for one big joint conference. How did that come about? It came about, we actually started discussing this about eight or nine years ago. 
So they, the two societies previously met together in Glasgow in 2010, and then we decided to try and get together again and started discussing it and as with all of these things it's taken quite some time to push through it's taken a lot of tenacity um, and determination and we eventually post pandemic managed to book Liverpool and and get the congress together which has been an absolute delight it really does feel like the end of the end of a, a very long journey but I think I think both societies will be delighted with the way it's gone I think Liverpool's been great yeah Liverpool is a fantastic city uh, the setup here is really nice with the hotels around us. I know people have been ducking out to go to the Tate Modern down the road. It's a, it's a real nice vibe about Liverpool. I like the place. Yeah, it really is. I think I think that's what attracted us to the city. I think the obviously the history of the Beatles as well, mm-hmm. and and of course the science. You know yourself, the bone and the anatomy that Jim Gallagher um, worked so hard on in Liverpool University, and so having him as the chair of the local organising committee and working together with him has been absolutely great. And and this this place is wonderful and not too disrupted by Eurovision just yet. <laughs> Um, we've talked to you before about some of the work you've done and you're presenting of, on a number of different subjects here. Would you like to tell us a little about maybe the poster you're presenting later on might be of interest to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So this is, as you said, I've talked to you before about our work in Africa. Mm-hmm. And the poster describes the prevalence of osteoporosis and osteopenia across seven cohorts. So one in the Gambia two in South Africa, two, one in Zimbabwe, and then Health ABC from the US and Hertfordshire Cohort from the UK. And the real reason for doing that was just to start to see, using our DEXA data, which are really unique across all of those cohorts, whether they're rural, whether they're urban, whether they're low-income country or a middle-income country, what does the actual profile of disease look like? And so that's essentially what I'll be describing. And and in actual fact, the prevalence of osteoporosis is fairly similar to the Health ABC white women. So these are all, all our cohorts in Africa are black African men and women. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a similar osteoporosis prevalence. Men, not so much, but we probably wouldn't expect that. And I think the, the real key message from the whole poster is that we mustn't ignore musculoskeletal diseases in these areas Um, we're building the data now we're getting fracture data I've not presented it here but the prevalence of fractures in our Gambian cohort for example is about 25% so we're seeing similar prevalences to elsewhere across the globe but healthcare is very stretched and resources are stretched and as the population ages they're going to get more and more stretched so it's really a call for prioritisation of that area across across sites. Mm. You're very busy at this conference, you've also got a talk as well, could you tell us about that? Yes I can, so this, this is... Um, This is a calcium supplementation study of um, mums in the Gambia. So this was actually run by Professor Anne Prentice in Cambridge back in 1995. And she supplemented women who were pregnant um, with 1,500 milligrams of calcium, which you'll both know is a similar recommendation Mm -hmm. to that that we give here. Um, And we then followed their offspring up for 21 years. And so I'll be presenting the data on the growth of the offspring and the blood pressure of the offspring. So the the main message of the main trial was that calcium supplementation didn't reduce preeclampsia rates in the mums who were given calcium. But what we've seen is that bone growth and height growth is slower in the girls whose mums took calcium, whereas the boys grew faster. 
and the blood pressure in the, in the girls whose mums took calcium is actually lower. So there seems to be a blood pressure effect, but it's intergenerational. It's happening in the children rather than the mums. Mm. So it's a complete puzzle. Um, everybody looks at me like that, Richie, when I talk about it. And of course, I don't have the bone data to present here, but that's what I'll be talking about tomorrow morning. Doesn't it highlight the fascinating links between the cardiovascular system and, and the bone system, which we, we hear more and more about? Yeah, I think it absolutely does. I mean, at the, at the time, it, it was looking, as I said, to look at redu reducing preeclampsia. We've reported the bone effects in the mums before, and, and I think it is a puzzle, and it, it does have consequences because the, the WHO recommend that in populations with low calcium intakes, women should take 1.5 to 2 milligrams, mm -hmm. uh, 2 grams, grams of calcium yeah. a day. And, and of course, our population is one with low calcium intakes. And that will, that will sound a fairly high dose to some people, or a very, mm. sorry, a fairly high recommendation. Um, and as you say, there are people in, in sub-Saharan Africa, they do have quite low intakes now. Is there any adaptation to low intakes, do you think? Well, I think there must be because, the, the you know, populations are habituated. There's very mm. little dairy consumption, although that yeah. has changed since this trial was, you know, was was run um, but very little dairy consumption we still see in our gambian cohorts in our zimbabwean cohorts calcium intakes are in around 300 to 400 milligrams per day which is that's very low for our standards but so there must be an adaptation because as you know calcium is such a vital yeah. nutrient to everybody's system if they didn't adapt there wouldn't be survival so it there has to be that adaptation yeah so i suppose my next thought would be to sort of conduct some sort of dose range trial because you know two grams seems quite a high mm. dose for someone who might be used to 300 milligrams mm. well th yeah that's that's very true and i mean there are other studies um so there have been some in the u.s and argentina that have also looked i'm not entirely sure of the dose but they've still found these offspring effects mm -hmm. or differential offspring effects um i think the the difficulty is is that there's there's a necessity to to give a recommendation yeah. but there's certainly I think a caution to apply in that recommendation now our population is homogenous it's rural subsistence farming um, and that's the argument I'm always given but I think all of our data from the Gambia shows that there's caution against not testing in the specific contexts mm. well it's um, yeah the findings seem confusing but it's when you test hypotheses and you don't get what you expected that very often you actually come across the really big discoveries. Absolutely. So Absolutely. It, it's simultaneously really exciting because clearly you're going to be able, if you can push it through, we're going to understand something about something new, something yeah. really novel and innovative. And I, and I think, like you say, I think that ad, that adaptation, there must be something. We've, we've not found anything in everything we've measured. We found some IGF differences in the mm -hmm. offspring, um, but nothing with PTH yet. We don't have hormone markers. Someone the other day suggested looking at interactions between PTH and oestrogen, but yeah, who knows? We'll keep looking. Fantastic, and we'll follow up with you about it again. Thank you very Perfect. much. Thank Great you very to speak much. to you again. Thank you. Cheers. We are here at ECTS 2023 with Professor Celia Gregson, head of NOG. You gave us a wonderful interview on the podcast a few weeks ago. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it. Pleasure, yes. It was um, interesting to listen to. How have you found ECTS this year? 
Fantastic, yeah, a really good array of, of talks. Um, quite a lot of detailed clinical um, uh, talks, which have been really, really interesting. What have you learned so far this year? I, I, I learned that uh, um, chemocytes are more beautiful than chondrocytes. And what was your evidence base for that? Um, an eminent speaker said it in her talk yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A few talks on Paget's disease. Paget's disease was one of those conditions that we thought had disappeared and yet is popping up at the conference all the time. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I, I don't know, but I, there was a very interesting talk on Thursday at the rare bone disease, but that was actually at the BRS, um, uh, around Perth's disease. And also saying essentially we don't know what the fundamental mm. etiology of that is, but it certainly is affecting more deprived communities in the UK, but it's, it, it, its incidence is coming down, very similarly to Paget's disease, um, was pointed out um, by somebody in the audience. So, yeah, interesting that we have, these, we have these diseases that have been around a long time and we still don't know actually what's causing them. It's one of the fascinating things about bone, isn't it? There's mm. still so much to be discovered. Yeah. I do wonder about an in infective underlying cause. Um, so I'm looking forward, there are a number of talks to come today and tomorrow on Paget's disease and hopefully we'll be able to grab some of those speakers, maybe Richie, and, uh, yeah. and, and uh, ask and them the harder questions. in Manchester, isn't there, that mm -hmm. follows on after That's this. That's right, yeah. 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 Celia, what are, your, what are your highlights, do you think, in the next few days? Um, well, obviously, uh, I'm going to be talking about the REDUCE study mm -hmm. <laughs> on Tuesday, so that's a highlight. Um, I think... I think that the debate actually last night um, around vitamin D trials mm -hmm. and whether or not um, there's a necessity for four more vitamin D trials, I thought that was a really great debate. Um, two really articulate speakers um, and a very, who obviously know each other and are very good friends and it's a, a, a very respectful argument. Um, but I thought that that was a really interesting discussion, actually. And, and I thought what was important was to think about um, maybe not more trials in high-income settings of the use of vitamin D in older community-dwelling populations. I think, I think we, the House has seen enough of those. But I think um, we don't know about um, other populations in the world and particularly particular disease groups um, for example, kidney disease, I, I was thinking of HIV while they were talking. I mean, we don't know about the role of vitamin D in those populations. So I think it's, it's more focused trials that might be necessary rather than mm -hmm. more of the same sorts of trials as we've already seen. But I thought it was a really interesting discussion. That was a highlight. I love the debate, so I feel they're always the highlight as well. It's yes, but it was done so gently. It's refreshing it's nice. to see proper academic scientific debate when so much debate yeah. in the public domain now is just people shouting at each other, yeah. particularly mm -hmm. on social media. It's nice mm -hmm. to hear people actually listening and debating and engaging on an academic level properly. And accepting when a, a point is, yeah. a, is a valid point against their argument. Um, I think, yeah, it was good. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. We're here with uh, Kasim Javed. How are you doing today? Oh, very good, actually. A little bit less tired than yesterday. I think I'm getting used to the rhythm of the conferences. It is a long conference, isn't it? It is. I've never had it back to back. We've got three. We've got the Bone Research Society, the ECTS, and then the Padgett's meeting. Wow. So it's a marathon. Thanks for making the time to speak to us. Can we call you a friend of the podcast? Of course you can. I'm looking for my third mug now, as you know. <laughs> third mug. So tell us a little. I mean, you're, you're 
one of the big names here oh, you're speaking to tell us about about sort of well what we were talking about earlier there the talk you're going to give later on yeah so we're, I've been kindly asked to just give an update on uh, my perspectives on denosumab and it's through the beauty of the ECTS is there's just a wealth of science from different disciplines and as we were talking from around the globe, not only Europe but also outside of Europe, and then give how I've applied that and how our region has applied that for patient benefit. So how do we translate that? And we were just talking about you know, what happens if you have denosumab therapy, when do you stop, what about atypical fractures, and you brought up the really important point that actually our main purpose is to prevent fractures. Mm -hmm. And if you do any math, the prevention of fractures by staying on therapy will always outweigh the potential risks of staying on therapy or of coming off therapy and facing you know, a rapid reduction in bone mass. So we know that if we keep patients on denosumab indefinitely, thousands and thousands of patients, some of those patients will suffer atypical fractures. But should we be prepared to swallow that and to be upfront with patients about that because of the benefits of staying on it in the long term for most people? That's a really good point. So I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's what the patient wants. Mm -hmm. So I've had a, a, a shift. We tend to give denosumab now to older patients. We're not faced with like 30 years of therapy. Yeah. But I have some younger patients who have low bone density and I explain the issues. And they simply come back to me and say, Dr. Javed, I just want to be fracture free for the next 10 years. Yeah. Uh, am I going to get that level of adherence with oral bisphosphonates? Probably not. Um, I want my bone density to keep increasing uh, and you know we sort of maneuver our way through uh, simple questions and answers and they then make the choice actually I will take denosumab and if it's a long-term therapy it's the long-term condition. So if we get to 10 years that's a discussion between you and the patient if we continue and if the patient wants to continue then that's something we should be prepared to Definitely, to, it's, it's, to and, it, and we know the biology a lot better now. We don't know the exact mechanism of the off effect but we know a little bit more about how it could work and that will be the challenge of patients who definitely need to come off for very few indications, you know, severe renal mm -hmm. failure, they're getting hypocalcemia, then you've got to think of an exit strategy. And we're swapping at the moment one one anti-resorptive possibly for another if we're giving IV zolindronic acid. Does that make sense to you? Uh, it, it does because of the duration of action, but it doesn't in terms of the mechanism of action. Yeah. But there's, some, there's a poster here uh, that showed um, weaning denosumab doses doesn't mm -hmm. actually lead to bone loss, which is actually quite exciting. It might be that actually we have a, a dose option in getting people on uh, who've already maybe achieved skeletal benefit uh, weaning them off, but that needs more studies, needs more analysis, but there are, that's why it's so exciting at the ECTS, there's so many new ideas that are coming. I never would have thought of using 15 milligrams of denosumab, that would have been an anathema to me, yeah. but you see other bright people bringing it up. Yeah, maybe we should be adjusting doses more for so many of the drugs we use, shouldn't we? Which is so analog. You yeah. either get 70 milligrams of alandronic acid or you get none. And that, you, should, you know, we should be adjusting doses. That's a good point. In, in Japan, they have a completely different approach yeah. to dosing for all the antiosterase medications. And I think the other elephant in the room is the indication. You know, are we using the same dose for severity of disease, but also for different disease indications? And you know, denosumab and other agents are being used in lots of other conditions, and we tend to stick to the doses we have, yeah. which doesn't quite make sense. Sorry, we're having a clinician's discussion here, Richie. This is really interesting. I'm sure the listeners are going to love to hear this kind of inside track on the treatments and the dosages and the regimens. I have a question for you both, actually. How important are conferences like ECTS for clinicians to build a consensus around how to treat your patients? 
I think it's really important because for on, on two broad levels, I suppose, it's for the, uh, the new clinician who isn't quite sure uh, reading the papers is one thing, but actually hearing someone present the data and then critically the type of questions that are asked can really upskill uh, the clinicians from moderate to really expert status. So it brings everyone up to the same level very quickly, more than you'd get by reading the paper. And then for those who want to push the field further, like I've said, you can bring new ideas forward and think of new uh, uh, studies, new ways to analyze the data. People will critique what you say and you think, actually you haven't thought about it like that. I need to go back to the office and do that. And I think it's that beautiful, uh, not aggressive in a, in a bad way, but aggressive in an intellectual way of saying, this is what you've shown me. I don't think this, this, and this work as well as that, that, and that. And it's that sort of freedom we have in these conferences to yeah. really understand what's going on that pushes the field forward on so many levels. There's a great freedom in face-to-face -face discussion. Yeah. I don't think you and I could maybe write a paper about what we've just discussed earlier, yeah. but we can talk about it face-to-face, -face and that's what moves the, the yeah. discussion on, isn't it? Exactly, and, and, and as I said, people will say, oh, we heard you talk at, uh, at this meeting, we're setting up a working group, can you come and join our working mm. group? And although we are now digital, we still need that face-to-face -to, -face to actually rapidly understand what's the, uh, what our knowledge is, what my knowledge is, and then see where the uncertainties are, and then push it forward. It's much better face-to-face. -face. And of course, the food is pretty good, and the drink is also useful. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking That's to us. That's great. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, do I get my mug now? Oh. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. Hi, everyone. We're here with Ralph Oheim from Hamburg. Nice to meet you. Hello, nice meeting you. You gave a fantastic talk which we saw today about iron in the body. Could you tell us about it? Actually, it's a very, very interesting uh, topic, but not well understood yet. And so I was asked to, to give a talk because we followed some uh, patients uh, with hemochromatosis and their bone manifestations. So, and of course, if you are invited to give a talk, then you're happy to do so. But it's a very complex uh, issue, and if you get into it, and if you read a lot of papers, then you are just realizing how complex it is. And um, so, yeah, actually, I'm lucky it's done. So. <laughs> People like maybe simplistic explanations for things, but in terms of iron, too much iron is bad for your bone, and too little iron is bad for your bone as well. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's completely right. So how do you... Here's an easy question. How do you explain that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, iron is, is like very tight regulated. And um, of course, it's like with many other um, uh, nutritions or, mm. or uh, yeah, supplements, um, we need just the right uh, amount of it. And iron is, um, if, you are, if you are not having enough, and you have ninja, for example, then of course not only the bones, but uh, just all the other organs suffer also. But um, especially the iron overload is an issue in, in disease. And that's why we have no, there's no mechanism in that our body can get rid of iron. So mm -hmm. you are not excreting iron. So the phlebotomy is the method that we use to in, in, in hemochromatosis, but otherwise there's no specific uh, way of losing it. And am I right in saying that the effect of, of too much iron in the body, hemochromatosis, it's not just reflected in low bone density, it's reflected it damages bones in other ways. Is that right? It's quality of bone as well? Uh, absolutely right. 
it's not just density and density is like two-dimensional of course it's structure yeah. it's metabolism it's in so affected in so many ways and we are just beginning to understand we know already there's good evidence that um, iron and uh, the oxygen um, uh, uh, subjects uh, reactive oxygen subjects subjects uh, do have an effect on the osteoblasting, osteoclastic lineage. But yeah, we are just at the beginning. So if somebody has too much iron in their body, is there a treatment that can reduce the iron levels? No, you can. It's basically, the, in, in hemochromatosis, um, you do um, a phlebotomy. So blood loss is an effective way to, to get rid of iron. And the other way is chelators, to use substances that bind iron, that you are not uh, absorbing uh, more iron at your, for your diet, and of course, low iron diet, etc. These, Otherwise, uh, it's really hard. We've been talking about too much iron. I think it's generally well known that to have too little iron, to be anemic, is also mm -hmm. bad for the bones. But you were saying today that when you get regular iron infusions, and many of my patients do come up and get regular iron infusions, that can actually be bad for the bones. You get high levels, what was it, FGF23, low phosphate, and you get, I don't like to say damage to the bones after an iron infusion, but getting iron infusions can be, can be bad for the bones, is that right? That is right, um, whereas we have to say that there is a reason for getting iron. Yeah. And of course, um, you have a disease, um, or you have anemia for different reasons and you want to treat the iron loss or the deficiency and that's why you need iron infusion, that's yeah. no doubt about it. Um, however, <clears throat> there are specific um, IV iron uh, substances that do exactly what you mentioned, mm -hmm. that uh, they interfere with the FGF23 metabolism, resulting in increased intact FGF23 levels. And this can lead to hypophosphatemia. And if hypophosphatemia persists for a long time, you can get osteomalacia, so the mineralization disorder of the bone. And then that is something really patients can be symptomatic with, with but these symptoms are very unspecific. So mm. muscle pain, bone pain, insufficiency fractures, something like this. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting you shouldn't be getting the iron infusion. I better, I better make that clear. But we're just saying we're learning about these things that actually regular iron infusions exactly. may upset bone metabolism. Yeah, exactly. And um, actually, hypophosphatemia is an official box warning in these uh, substances. Yeah. So just you have to look for it. And there are many patients are fine with with their IV iron, but some get hypophosphatemic, and some of these get um, the osteomalacia. So we have to check it. Yeah. The relationship between iron and bone health seems to be quite overlooked. The chair in your session at the end said this might have been the first time we've ever had talks about this at ECTS. Why do you think it's such a neglected area of research? Oh, that's hard to say. From I think um, some of the diseases, the patients are very badly affected. So no one was really actually wondering why these patients do have secondary osteoporosis because they are just very, very ill. And then, just with the second, third look, it came out, it's the iron itself that's doing harm to the bone, also in addition to all the other endocrinopathies, etc. So, um, but looking forward is um, that we have it now uh, on the map and we've taken care about it. And as we said, like this whole issue of 
iron and hypoxemia. There is mm. the huge uh, need of um, um, investigating this issue and how it works on tissue level, etc., etc. So we'll see a lot of interesting stuff. Should all patients with hemochromatosis be assessed for bone health then? Should they be getting DEXA scans? Yeah, adults should actually. And um, most patients get symptomatic uh, between 30 and 40. And it's much easier to, to monitor them early and to treat them early mm. than to deal with the complications of the secondary osteoporosis or the fragility fractures. So yeah, screen them early. So that's a message for my gastroenterology colleagues who I know all listen to the podcast. <laughs> sure they do. <laughs> Ralph, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been really thank good. You. Thank you. Thank you. So we're very lucky to have Emma Clark with us. Emma, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you, Richie. Are you enjoying ECTS this year? Yeah, very much so, actually. I haven't been for a couple of years, and um, again, I'm just really struck by the variety. I really like the mix of uh, basic science and clinical and orthopedic surgeons and rheumatologists and basic scientists. It's great. It's what we were talking about earlier, just it's so exciting that people from different aspects of the bone world get together, all working for the benefit of patients, and you get so many ideas bounced off each other, don't you? No, I agree, and I, I like you know the way the posters are arranged. You haven't got clinical at one end and basic at the yeah. other. It's all mixed together so that you do get a really good sort of cross-pollination and you can you know, get so many different conversations as you walk through, it's great. And so what's some of the point of coming to a face-to-face -face conference is meeting people yeah. at posters, isn't it, and talking about things and, and saying, well, that's interesting because I used to see a patient who, and, and which you don't get over Zoom. Oh, definitely, definitely. And um, particularly when you um, have a session like this lunchtime where people are standing outside their posters, yeah. you know, you walk along and you make the mistake, or perhaps it's not the mistake, of catching someone's eye and then you feel obliged to ask them and then you realise it's amazing. Yeah. It's really interesting. I really, it does broaden your horizons. It's really important for the young scientists here. I remember when I was young coming to my first conferences and presenting posters. It's great when people walk by and start asking you questions and you get to talk about. You spend so much time in a lab doing your own little thing you kind of forget there's a bigger world out there and it's so wonderful to share it with people. Yeah definitely so I've got a, um, my junior researchers here she's on a um, PCAF scheme which is a preclinical scheme prior to a PhD. It's her first poster at a conference and she's just stood there and she's her knees are trembling and she's loving it people are coming up to her and she's writing down the answers and the questions and she's just really excited and a bit buzzing and knowing what she's going to do differently next time and you know it's great. When you're in the middle of your research you're so scared coming to conferences yeah. that people will ask you hard questions and you forget that you probably know more about your research than anyone else in the world yeah. probably even more than your supervisor regardless of what your supervisor pretends. No I agree completely <laughs> yeah. I, th I think it works the other way I want the really really hard questions because that means that the people in the audience are spotting the flaws, the problems, the inconsistencies in your work and telling you. And that means they're doing your job for you and it makes your research easier in the end. Definitely. And you can't, um, you can't possibly assume that you know everything about your research. And, and people will come at it from different um, angles, from different specialties and different backgrounds. And it just makes it much more rich, I think. Yeah. Anything you've enjoyed particularly? Anything you're looking forward to particularly? Well, I'm going in a minute to the management of um, atypical femoral fractures and how we treat them afterwards because that's something that scares me. So I want to know what other people are doing to, to just see if I can get any other suggestions. That sounds like a good one. Yeah. Thank you very much, Emma.
Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. speaking to me. Bye. Listeners, we're very lucky to have Richard Keane with us. Welcome to the show. Hi, nice to meet you. Uh, so, Richard, you've been studying rare bone diseases and you've got a presentation at the conference. Would you be able to tell us about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been studying um, fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, which is a pretty long name. It's FOP uh, in abbreviation. Um, as it's a really devastating disease. It affects about one in a million individuals where basically bone starts to develop in places it shouldn't. But what's really exciting is that you know there are some trials that we've been involved with looking at sort of drugs that might slow the progression of, of this of this disease. Um, so the the presentation I'm I'm going to be talking about is a drug called garatozumab, which is a monoclonal antibody against active in A, and it seems to reduce the the number of flare-ups these patients get, um, so stops the, the bone forming, uh, and therefore we're hoping with long term it's going to sort of have an impact on improving their quality of life. Wonderful. We were speaking to Gonzalez earlier just about FOP, which will perhaps make it sound more common to, to our <laughs> listeners than it than it actually is. With rare diseases like that, there's sometimes a focus nowadays, do you think, on getting to the genetic cause and on, on a gene treatment for the disease? It's interesting that, that you're looking still at a monoclonal antibody at actually treating the outcome of the disease rather than getting to the, to the genetic cause of it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the gene for this disease was only discovered about 17 yeah. years ago. So, I, and I think that opened up understanding the pathophysiology. So, at the moment, yes, we're still using drugs in the pathway of the of the condition. But I, I mean, I think you know, with the advances that are going on with genetics as well, some sort of gene therapy is also on. You know, is something that will be looked at. But at the moment, just by understanding the biology, we've identified a number of potential targets um, of drug treatments. And there's actually, I'm, I'm presenting on one of the trials, um, some of the data. But but there's, there's at least another two or three trials sort of in phase two development already, so which again is really exciting for the patient group. And will these, and again I'm always thinking of the one or two patients I have in my clinic with unusual diseases like this, will this reverse the process that's happened or will it simply stop it getting any worse? Because you know that's that's the first question I think people ask. Yeah, I, I, I think these treatments are pr at the moment they look like they're just going to stop the progression. Mm -hmm. But again, I think if we've got treatments that actually do that, then for some of the patients that already have quite severe disease, there may be the possibility of you know doing a surgical trial whereby you could release a, a, a fixed joint and then give them the drug afterwards to prevent it sort of re refusing. That's exactly what I was thinking because you know I'm thinking of a patient who has even minor surgery and has huge overgrowth as a result yeah. of it um, but if we could give this drug and, and then they could go for surgery and, and exactly not I mean, see that reactive bone growth exactly because I, I just think for the patients that already have this disease yeah. um, that uh, you know, it's impacted an awful lot on their life and so I think that they they need something that's going to uh, hopefully improve matters and, that, and at the moment the drugs don't look like they'll do that but surgery with then a drug afterwards um, is, 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 an, is another goal of what we're trying to do um, a lot of the more common diseases like osteoporosis have got multiple therapies available for the patients. Is there more of a shift now to try and develop medicines for people with rare diseases? Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I think, again, our understanding about these rare diseases, both, you know, I understand the genetics and the biology, um, but also we know from, you know, some of the drugs we're using in osteoporosis, actually understanding the, the, the sort of biology of rare diseases has then led on to drugs for osteoporosis. But I do think we're, we're at a, an age now where, some of the rare diseases which you know, weren't being offered any treatment at all 
it, we're now in a massive explosion of, of, of new treatments, which, which is great because, again, you know, as a doctor myself, when I look after a lot of patients with osteoporosis, but again, the, the, the rare disease community has been forgotten for a while. But I think we're on a really good trajectory with, with, with new treatments. I think we're going to have to get you back for a full episode so we can explore the rare diseases in more detail. I'd be delighted to. Wonderful. That would be great. We'll even give you another episode mug if you do. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. We have a new guest with us. We've been talking on Twitter. <laughs> would you tell us who you are and where you're from? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Gonzalo Sanchez uh, Dufus, actually. I have a mixed uh, background. I'm originally from Spain, but I'm half Dutch. And I've been uh, in the Netherlands for the past 12 years uh, doing research. And now I'm, I'm actually, since January 1st, moving back to Spain to have my own lab uh, over there. Oh, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, well, and uh, scary too. <laughs> <laughs> so t tell us what you're presenting here at the conference. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a biochemist uh, by education. I basically focused on uh, T-beta signaling and rare diseases where T-beta signaling is mutated. Mm -hmm. And of course, one of those rare diseases is fibroisplasia ossificans progressiva. It's an ultra rare disease where patients develop a second skeleton uh, mm -hmm. in response to um, inflammatory damage. So what we found is that uh, by reproposing drugs, which are already in the market for the treatment of cancer, for example, uh, one of those drugs was effectively uh, inhib inhibiting uh, bone formation in, in mouse models of, uh, of uh, FOP and also in uh, IPS derived from uh, FOP patients. Yeah. Wonderful. What do you mean by second skeleton? Yeah, well, what this, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of uh, devastating disease, but at the same time fascinating. So um, these guys, well, it was back in 2006 that uh, it was identified that uh, all patients carry exactly the same single point mutation in one gene, mm -hmm. right? And uh, this mutation turns on the T-beta uh, pathway in response to inflammation. It has been found out that it's like a specific uh, fibrodiprogenic progenitor cells uh, in, in the bone tissue, in the connective tissue actually, that uh, become osteoblast in response to inflammation. So that starts affecting connective tissue like the ligaments, the fascia, the, the tendons. So eventually they would get imprisoned. So mobility is compromised very quickly. Uh, their jaws get fixed, so they show yeah. nutritional uh, problems because they cannot be, uh, they cannot eat properly, and uh, I think they're um, uh, normally they, they by their thirties they are wheelchair bound, and they die around by their forties. So this is a rare disease yeah. where people's soft tissues essentially yeah. turn into bone exactly. and sort of become, as you were saying, almost like a second a second skeleton. Yeah. It has a very long name, but we call it FOP exactly. when we're talking about it here <laughs> at conferences. It's, it's rare. How, how common, maybe this is an unfair question, yeah. to just drop on you, how common is it? How many people, let's say, in a, in a European country would you expect to see yeah, with so, FOP? Uh, right now, well, when, when I started working on that, like, 12 years ago, the prevalence was, was meant to be one in two million. Mm -hmm. But nowadays it's one in one million. And that's mainly because of the, the great effort that has been made in awareness. Mm -hmm. So uh, the only symptom that uh, babies have when they are born with FOP, it's a great toe malformation, so this hallux uh, valgus. Mm -hmm. um, and nowadays we can diagnose with a genetic test, uh, but usually when, when uh, uh, these kids go to, to the hospital, they 
pediatricians, they think of tumors. Yeah. So they try to resect it. And when you resect it, you induce inflammation, you, you which worse. causes yeah. a, a relapse. Yeah. And uh, so nowadays, basically, I think it's a matter of, of uh, diagnosis and awareness uh, that we are now in one per 1,000. And if, one million, sorry, if we're screening for any condition, the question yeah. always is, well, is there effective treatment if you screen yeah. for a condition? There's no cure for There's it at no the cure. moment, but there are ways of managing it. Yeah, so traditionally what we have been doing is to basically apply uh, cold packs mm -hmm. and broad-spectrum anti-inflammatories because somehow it has been reported that the patients can sense when a, when a flare-up is coming. Uh, it's not always true that a flare-up becoming an extraskeletal plaque of bone, but uh, this, this has been the, 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 the treatment or the, the way to manage the disease. Of course, once a kid is diagnosed, then you, you take special care of, of its physical activities and be aware you cannot, for example, bike like anybody else because in yeah. case you fall, be aware you cannot play soccer, but these kind of things. And um, yeah, I think we have a couple of, nowadays we have a couple of uh, drugs in clinical trials. Uh, that look very promising. Major concern is that you know when you play, you don't want to mess up the, with the T beta signaling pathway systemically. Uh, yeah. That we got to know from cancer studies. Uh, so whether those studies will result in a drug that it's effective but at the same time safe, it's it's still a concern. And as we often say with these rare diseases, we sometimes learn things about how Indeed. bones work that we can apply to maybe That's my more common, line, maybe actually. more common diseases. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. That's my research line. Yeah. Wonderful research. Thank you very much for sharing with us. You're very welcome and thanks a lot for the uh, invitation. That's great. <laughs> so our next guest, this will be interesting. It's one of Richie's postdoc students who's going to tell us a little about her work and a little about maybe what it's like to work with, with Richie. So <laughs> introduce yourself if you don't mind. <laughs> Hi, my name is Dahlia and um, yeah, I work as part of Richie's group to understand uh, collagen mineral at the nanoscale. So I, I work mainly to um, uh, sort of interrogate the, the structure of bone at that scale using um, various electromicroscopy techniques. Um, I also uh, like want to interrogate the um, molecular sort of interaction between collagen and mineral using uh, spectroscopy. Um, okay, so patients I see, they told, they're told as they get older that the amount of bone tissue they have goes down. You're yeah. looking at the quality of bone changing as well? Correct, right? yeah. So and what I do you see with your, with your scanning electron microscope or your... your um, so, so far, uh, we've been doing uh, some cryo... Um, SEM, so cryogenic mm -hmm. work. So we were able to visualize the bone tissue uh, hydrated. And some of our images have shown that um, the older femurs have uh, more haversian systems um, and, and on the, in the transverse cross-section of the tissue. And we believe it's linked to a um, higher rate of bone remodeling with age. Okay. Um, and we've also seen with the spectroscopy that the um, older uh, femurs um, have lower collagen content. And it might be possibly linked to the fact that the structure is, because of there's a remodeling sort of situation going on, that the um, structure is transitioning and therefore these bonds aren't as readily formed. Um, because of the fact that it's a, it's a changing system. 
And um, have you been able to look at people who've been treated to slow down their bone remodeling as compares, compared with those who haven't? Um, no, not yet. No, we haven't <laughs> had a look at that just yet. It's <laughs> a good idea, though. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. See yeah. if maybe it restores or reverses the changes. It strikes me that some patients, you, you probably know this, we give them what are called anti-resorptives, which slow yes. down bone turnover and remodeling. Yes. Some patients with very bad disease, we give them anabolic agents, which actually stimulate and increase bone turnover for a period of time. Right. So okay. that might be interesting to look at at a with, yeah. the with the electron microscope to see just what's happening. Definitely. I mean, we just saw a talk like a two hours ago about the combination of using uh, anti-resorbative um, sort of treatments along with anabolic treatments and the effects of those. Um, I'm, I'm not too sort of practiced on the effects of the drugs necessarily, but it would be interesting to sort of see how that would look uh, visually um, mm -hmm. and what happens to the bone tissue at the nanoscale and the microscale and even like molecularly. You always get these amazing images when you use electron microscopy. Yeah. How does that translate or do you think it would eventually translate to something that I could use at the clinic? Um, that's an interesting question. Because <laughs> um, so you, you use bone from, from people who've had the hip replacements, is that right mostly? Um, so it's a combination of both, so it's that and cadaveric tissue as well that we use. So it, yeah, so it's, yeah. It's, it's not living It's not yeah. living bone, it's not bone in a human being, exactly. it's bone that has been removed or yeah. from a human who's died. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, in a, for, I guess, clinically, we're trying to understand if there is maybe a potential sort of way to target um, uh, like molecularly like a link between collagen mineral because obviously that's what gives bone its integrity mm -hmm. the 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 synergy that, ha that that exists between these two sort of components so it'd be interesting I guess to sort of understand scientifically what happens with age I guess or with disease and hopefully that could translate in a clinical setting where people might try to use these as targets for um, potential treatments maybe, mm. yeah. And finally, what's he like to work with? <laughs> uh, Richie's great, yeah, 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 yeah. He's <laughs> great, he's very supportive, very hands-on, and it, it's great to work with Richie for sure, yeah. He realized he edits this. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great working with you as well, yeah, Talia. Yeah, oh, that's great. I think this is a really good example of the bone world reaching out a bit to bring in people with really good skills and mm -hmm. knowledge of new technology yeah. to come in and then start adapting and developing that technology to learn, yeah. uh, to learn new information about bone structure yeah. at a very small level, which is going to be really relevant for fractures and aging and disease. But at the minute... Yeah. At the minute, we know very little about how bone structure changes at molecular and nano level, yeah. let alone what that does to the bone or whether or not there's any mm. targets there for yeah. treatment and diagnosis. It's an exciting project. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's very little, yeah, like what Richie's saying, very little literature out there about what happens at that scale, at the molecular scale. Nobody really understands um, what's going on. So it might allow for sort of um, like potential, like I was saying, like, treatments or just to understand that what we're targeting is maybe something um, or what we need to target sorry is, is something a bit deeper than just the surface level it's mm. actually down to like the atomic scale <laughs> but we'll see it's really bone up bone it up, really yeah. is <laughs> thanks very much Della. no worries thank you for having me 
we're lucky enough to have Kevin Ockren with us. How are you doing today, Kevin? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited you have me on your podcast today. Oh, wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Have you been to a conference before or is this your first one? I've been to a conference, but this is my first ECTS Congress. Yeah, and it's, it's I mean, it's, an, it's a nice atmosphere. Everybody mm. here is lovely and I'm actually learning a lot, a lot of cases to see and a lot of um, insight to learn. Yeah. And I understand you're a PhD student. What's yeah. your research about? Okay, I'm a PhD student at Leiden University Medical Center and I work on bone complications mm -hmm. after liver and kidney transplant and of course the outcomes you expect is fractures but we try to study osteoporosis and any sort of bone declining bone turnover markers in the middle yeah mm. so after patients have the liver or kidney transplant they're probably very focused on the liver and kidney and the problem is they maybe have a fracture six months later yeah so most of the time the fracture happens in the first yeah, three to six months, but of, co of course the first year is the most intensive. And for, for example, the glucocticoids, it does decrease uh, bone formation during the first year. And then in the second year, it does also yeah, um, increase bone resorption. So of course the first six mm -hmm. months, um, six to one year, six months to one year is when we really pay attention to these patients. And can we do anything before the transplant to make it less likely the patient's going to have a fracture after the transplant? Uh, okay, so for example, we do assess a patient's bone mineral density and if it's really low we can give bisphosphonates to improve um, the bone mineral density and also when it comes to calcium levels uh, pth levels vitamin d levels we can give some sort of supplements before the transplant happens to improve yeah these markers to help reduce the patient's risk for fractures so tell us then you mentioned both liver and kidney yeah i see patients with kidney transplants mm -hmm who've had very low bone mineral density for years, mm -hmm. and when they get the kidney transplant, mm -hmm. often their bones recover mm -hmm. quite well. Yeah. I'm always educating my renal colleagues mm -hmm. about this. What happens after a liver transplant? Do the bones recover spontaneously? Okay, so with that, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on the pre-transplant factors. Um, for example, the type of liver disease determines uh, the outcome also. Uh, but then, if the patient has low bone mineral density, if it's, if it's below uh, minus 3.5, Okay, it, it depends on whatever hospital it is and what kind of guidelines they are following. But ideally, I always say that if the BMD is below minus 1.5, I think everybody should get bisphosphonates to improve the BMD and to reduce the fracture risk. Yeah, so of course, if the patient has some sort of low BMD, we can give uh, bisphosphonates to improve the BMD and also yeah, reduce fracture risk. But it depends. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't mm. work, yeah, based on the factors present in the patient. Yeah. Why are people with liver or kidney disease, disease at higher risk of having a fracture? What's the mechanism? Uh, it, it, it's, it's complex. Uh, mm. It's multifactorial, but I'm going to try to explain. Um, not the pathophysiology, but a bit of the mechanism. Um, so I can, I can only paint a story to you. So for example, you have an alcoholic, liver, alcoholic patient. Mm. Um, alcohol, alcohol itself um, affects the um, osteoblast and osteoclast. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and most of these patients, they are high on alcohol and stuff like that. And once the liver gets damaged, it can't, for example, it can't really absorb vitamin D, it can really, uh, for example, collagen synthesis and stuff like that, it gets affected. And yeah, so that plays a role. Uh, vitamin D levels get low, PTH levels yeah, get affected and stuff like that. And it's start before the transplantation. And when the transplantation happens, you give glucocorticoids to uh, for immunosuppression, mm -hmm. and that also has an effect um, on bone formation and bone resorption. And yeah, so the thing that has caused the liver disease mm -hmm. has also damaged the bone. Yeah, of course, Al alcohol is really toxic to the bone. Also, yeah, yeah. so it happens. Mm. Yeah. We shouldn't tell that to conference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Kevin, thank uh, you very much for talking to yeah, us today. That was really wonderful. Yeah, I appreciate being here. That's great. Yeah. Nice to talk to you. Very thank nice you. To talk to you. Yeah. 
We're here now with Frederica Schulter from ETH Zurich. Welcome to Bone Up. Thank you. Welcome also from my side. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about your research. We looked at your poster earlier on and it seems very exciting. Could you tell us about the work you're presenting at the conference? Yes, sure. Um, we work on uh, the effects that a combination between uh, different treatments, anti-catabolic treatments or anabolic treatments, and an additional regional mechanical loading can have on the bone response. And we work in uh, the preclinical field, we work uh, with mice. This is something very exciting. We love talking to people. We've been particularly excited looking at your work. What you're saying in the simplest terms is that if you exercise, it adds substantially to the benefit of most of the drugs you can get for osteoporosis, but some drugs it seems to add particularly. Is that right? That's right. That's right. We looked at uh, um, bisphosphonate mm -hmm. uh, therapy. We looked at uh, PGH therapy and uh, at uh, antistorostin therapy. Okay. And uh, what we could see is that all therapies um, benefit from an additional mechanical loading. Um, but uh, the uh, bisphosphonates, um, you see only a up to 15% increase in benefit in, in improvement in of bone mass. In uh, PTH, you see an additive effect of uh, 30%. And uh, with chlorostin antibodies, uh, if they are combined with regional mechanical loading, we get an, a, a synergistic bone response uh, 40% more than we would have expected. Mm. Yep. So wow. to translate that into the almost the language we use in the clinic, so the PTH is teriparatide injection. So anyone listening to this who's had teriparatide injections, and that sclerosin antibody is romosuzumab. And what you're saying is if you just take the drug, you get some improvement. But if you, mechanical loading sort of means exercising in many ways. We could talk about the different types of that. Did you get an additive effect from the drug? 15%, 30%, 40%, depending on which drug you take. Those two drugs that you're getting maximum benefit from, those are both anabolic drugs. Is there is there something in that, do you think? Yeah, we believe that uh, they act on the same mechanism uh, that is also used by mechanical loading. So a bone, um, yeah, we have all drugs, uh, they um, act on this uh, cellular feedback system that allows bone to adapt to changing mechanical demands and therefore um, it was interesting for us to also evaluate whether they would act on the same exact same mechanism because only mm -hmm. then we could um, expect a, uh, an even synergistic response from a combination of the two treatments. This is really exciting research. It makes complete sense that exercise is going to potentiate the effect of drugs or maybe work alongside the drugs. When you get these extra increases in bone mass of between 15 to 40%, what do you think that would do for the fracture risk reduction? Well, especially for the sclerosin antibodies, um, no, for all uh, therapies, we can see, uh, because we can visually compare whether the sites that are improved are really also the sites in need of strengthening, and we can see this, and uh, we can also quantify this relationship. So this is there. The sites that are in need of uh, improvement are um, tackled by the bone formation and uh, are then improved, and therefore we expect also a lower fracture risk to be proven by uh, clinical studies then later on. So yeah. we are... You were showing us some lovely images earlier, which we can't reproduce in the podcast. You were showing me areas of bone that, that look weak, and those same areas after rheumatism, after exercise, those are the particular areas that get stronger, because people sometimes say, you're making new bone. Is it useful bone? Is it in the right place? You're showing that that combination of exercise and, and anabolic agents, it's just exactly the right place. 
Yeah, I think that's the real benefit of the yeah. um, mechanical loading that uh, we add this uh, stimulus because uh, this stimulus can uh, indicate where um, the cells should act and where they should be recruited. So one more question, if we may. Are you going to submit it to nature or science? <laughs> <laughs> we can have a try. <laughs> yeah, it's really, always it's try. <laughs> really, really interesting and exciting work. And from my point of view, that's really high science. But it's exactly the sort of question the patients ask me at the clinic as well. So uh, really lovely to talk to you. For the benefit of the listeners, David has a very broad smile. I think we found some research that <laughs> is translating into <laughs> his clinical practice. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Lovely yeah. to talk to you. Wow, David, we're only halfway through the conference and we've already had some really great interviews. What are your takeaways so far? Yeah, there's, there's so much to choose from. Um, we've been hearing a lot, both the people we've interviewed and, and at meetings as well, about how other diseases affect bones. So we've heard about diabetes, about iron, about liver, about transplantation. That's always interesting because at the clinic, you don't see patients with just one condition. You see patients with lots of things together. It's always nice to come to these conferences and hear about rare conditions as well. And certainly we spoke to a couple of people, um, Richard and Gonzalez, both about FOP. And that, that's always, always an interesting takeaway to go and think about that. Um, I always enjoy having chats with my clinician friends. And, and certainly uh, Cass Javed and I had an interesting chat about, uh, about dosing and how we tend to use exactly the same doses for patients, regardless of their age, size, gender, anything else, and how perhaps in the future we could, we could look more uh, at more sort of personalized dosing. And I think you and I both sort of agreed that, that, that the last interview we had there just with Frederica about, about adding exercise to, to treatment was, was very exciting. Uh, not only do you potentiate medicine by exercising as well, but it seems you potentiate anabolics rather than anti-resorptives, which would make sense. And I think the very exciting thing and interesting thing, and the sort of thing patients ask me sometimes as well, is that we weren't able to show you the pictures, obviously, on the cast, but you could see how you were building bone in all the right places in those parts of the body that, that were weak, you know, in the neck of femur. So that was really exciting. Your body seems to know how to respond to these things. So, uh, yeah, so much to go away and think about, uh, Richie. Um, you as well. I'm sure you had a lot of take home messages. I've really enjoyed this conference so far. I think what I've most appreciated is how much good basic science and preclinical science there is. By the preclinical science, I mean the animal work that's going on. It's really exciting. I agree. I think Friedrich's work was absolutely incredible. And I think that's a good example of this where uh, preclinical research is being done, which gives us a really good idea maybe of how the drugs are going to work in humans. So there's a translatable aspect for that. I'm really pleased to see so many people at the conference who are interested in in bone structure and bone mechanics which i find really interesting and i'm looking forward to the second half of the conference that's great uh, we'll see you folks in part two